This morning, we're continuing our sermon series titled The Servant King, and our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Nate. If this is your uh, 50th time here or first time here, good to be with you. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Mark since September, and last week we kind of got to the middle point of the book. And what we saw there is Jesus revealed this confounding identity, that he is the king, but also that he's a king with a cross, and that is confounding. But we also saw that, the, that this Jesus, he invited any and all to follow him. And we saw last week that this following was this counterintuitive way of living, It was this denying self, taking up your cross, and following him. And you may have wondered last week, 
what does that look like? What does it look like to follow him? What is this counterintuitive way of living? Well, the next three weeks in the Gospel of Mark are really about one thing. It's the way of the king. It's learning what does it look like in real time to follow him. And this morning, we get an account that I would just say for the majority of of us sounds really strange. Uh, Jesus goes up on a mountain and the word is transfigured. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there's this kind of supernatural moment. They, They see Jesus in a very unique way. And then they go down the mountain and there's this demonic exorcism that kind of happens in the value. This is a strange account for a person in the modern West, put it that way. It's very supernatural, and it can seem, I would say, for a majority of us, maybe even unrelatable to us. So let me start here, because I will say there's much for us here, but let me start here this morning where I think any and all of you can relate. Some of you this morning, you're in despair. You have used words like, hopeless over the past number of months. Your circumstances, though maybe not as hard as others, are overwhelming. What are you to do? Well, check this. We're going to learn today. What do you do in despair? Because that's part of the way of the king. Or the other side of it, Others of you, perhaps many of you, you want to make a profound difference in this world. You see a lot that is going on, and you want your life to matter. You want to do things that are going to change lives. And you're already, many of you, investing your time, your resources in doing just that. And the question is, what does this passage have to say about how to do that? Because that's part of the way of the king. So here's the point. Whether you are this morning in despair or whether you are wanting to make a difference in the world and you're ready to go, this passage wants you to see Jesus' glory on the mountain so that you might learn to rely on him in the valley. This passage wants to show you one thing. You want to see Jesus' glory on the mountain so that you might learn to rely on him in the valley. So let me pray, and we'll step in. Father, this morning, would you allow your word to take such deep root in our lives that the troubles that the word brings may not cause it to wither, that the cares and concerns of this world would not be allowed to choke it out, but that your word sown this morning would be like the word sown in good ground, that it might bring 30, 60, 100-fold in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the passage opens, and Mark begins to record that Jesus went up with his 
three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. And I said this a moment ago, it's a strange account, but you need to understand something. This is not the first time there's been something like this on a mountain in the scriptures. Uh, if you go back to the book of Exodus, on the mountain, God comes down on Mount Sinai in a cloud. Moses goes up, and Moses says this, show me your glory. And it's one of those strange accounts because God says, okay, you want to see my glory, but by the way, if you'll see it, you'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you behind a cleft, and I'll put my hand in front of you, and I'll have my goodness pass in front of you. And so Moses catches a, almost like a millisecond, I don't even know, of God's glory and still survives. And now here we are on another mountain with Jesus. But this time, God does not hide these three in a rock and pass before him. Mark records what happens in verse 3. Actually, at the end of verse 2, into verse 3, it says this about Jesus. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on the earth could bleach them. Now, what's happening? Um, one of my favorite Marvel characters is Spider-Man. And the reason is, is because Peter Parker's a normal, nerdy kid, right? And he's, he's given these great powers. And it's like these great powers are hiding in this normal, nerdy kid. And, you know, put it this way, the one time you see Spider-Man's glory really on full display is when he has his suit on, right? Like, that's when he's all there, right? But oftentimes, most time, he's just a normal, average, nerdy kid, and sometimes when he's normal and average and nerdy, he'll, like, do something special, and it's like, holy cow, that was crazy, right? What does that have to do with this? Uh, a little bit, okay? Maybe this is a stretch. But when you look at the person of Jesus in the Scriptures, one of the things we see is that he is the eternal Son of God. In other words, he's always been. God's a triune God. He's always been. And yet the Scriptures say there was a moment where he put on flesh. We were just there over Advent. That's the, the miracle. The, the eternal Son of God puts on flesh, and he comes down. And he's human. He's normal. He's average. Maybe nerdy. I don't know. But he's normal. He's average, right? And in one sense, you might say, his glory is veiled. You know, in, the, in, in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do remarkable things. We've seen him stop storms with a word. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal from a distance or up close. He's done remarkable things, but for the most part, it's been in his humanity that we've just seen that. It's very veiled. But up on the mountain, the veil is lifted. It's lifted. The disciples catch a glimpse of the brilliance and the beauty of who Jesus is in his splendor and his glory. It is an experience. But it's not just that. There are two figures, two people who show up. The passage says in verse 4, it's Elijah and Moses. Now, why is that significant? Let's put it this way. Let's imagine that um, you saw a 23-year-old, six foot six, just very stout, 
athletically built man out in the foyer there, and next to him were Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Okay, what would you think? You would know something about that person based on who was around them, or maybe to take it out of the sports realm, let's say Olivia Rodrigo and Taylor Swift, this is for the teenagers, okay, um, <laughs> were hanging out with this young, kind of cool-looking, hip girl. You, oh, right away, you would know, okay, there's something going on here. So what's going on with Jesus? Well, to remind you, uh, Moses, he was the one in the Old Testament who's used to rescue God's people from Egypt. He's the one who, through him, was given the law. Elijah is this powerful prophet. Uh, and one of the things it said about Elijah was that, that there was going to be someone like Elijah that would come in the last days. In other words, there's going to be someone like him before the king comes. And so these are the two, I mean, dominant figures in the Old Testament. And they show up with Jesus on the mountain. What does it mean? A lot of things. Let me give you a couple. The first is this, is that Christianity teaches that God created the world and that because our forebears rebelled against God, our relationship to God, to one another, to ourself, and to this world is broken. But that from the very beginning, God made a promise that he was going to rescue and renew it. And here's what it means. When, when Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus, it means this mission to rescue and renew this world, it's in its final chapter. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one who's going to ultimately bring about all the hopes, all the dreams of what the Old Testament was foretelling. It's all in him. But secondly, there's another exodus taking place. So, Moses, God's people are in physical bondage in Egypt. God shows up, rescues them. The final judgment is, a, is this destroying angel who shows up. And there's this, great, there's this great moment where God provides, he tells his people, put a Sacrifice a lamb and put it over the doorpost. And that way, when the destroying angel comes, I'll pass over. And that night, it passes over all of Israel. And then the firstborn son of everyone else dies. It's a terrible judgment. But here's what that meant. It meant this. Israel was no better than the rest of the people. The only difference was the blood over the lamb. That's the only difference. Now, friends, Fast forward now to where Jesus is. He has just said he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And here's what's happening. In the broader narrative of Scripture, what's telling us about this world and what's about us is that our greatest problem is spiritual bondage. Our greatest problem is sin. We, we worship other things than God. And that the only way out is a Passover lamb. And that Jesus has come to be that Passover lamb. He's the true and better Moses. And here's why. It, it, it's, listen, it, to be a Christian 
This is one of the great things about being a Christian is it gives you great freedom to say, I cannot look down at anybody else because I'm no better than anybody else. The only way that I know that I can be accepted by God is because he's provided through his son Jesus. He's the lamb. And that's what it means when, when Moses and Elijah are there. That's what it's telling us about Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. Look what happens in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, this cloud. In the Old Testament, it was a picture of God's presence and his protection. And it shows up here, and then all of a sudden, right in that moment, a voice comes and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. If you remember the very beginning of Mark, when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, a voice comes from the clouds, same thing, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here's the significance. As Mark 1 opens, we're, we're beginning to see that Jesus is the king who's inaugurating a kingdom. He is the king. But now, as Mark 8 turns and we see that this is a king with a cross, guess what? The father is still pleased with him. Where he is going, he is still pleased with the son. And that language of listening to him, um, you know, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said a prophet would come after him who you must listen to. And right here, this voice is saying, it's him, he's here. And right after in verse 8, Moses, Elijah disappear. They're no longer there. And that means that Jesus transcends all other past revelations. Listen, there's a lot here, but let me, let me move for a moment to what, why this matters. Firstly, for Jesus. Uh, think about it. It's the presence of his Father, the voice of the Father, a community of those who had gone before Elijah and Moses, and it's to strengthen Jesus in what lies ahead, in where he's going. It's to strengthen him. Jesus, what he needed most, his Father's presence, his Father's approval, he gets it. He experiences it. But we need this as well. Um, this past week, uh, I was in uh, at the orthodontist for one of my kids, and um, it was kind of this like, it was a moment where the person that was kind of overseeing it was like, okay, so here's kind of like going through all this paperwork, and then she says, I'm, I'm going to go get the doctor, or the orthodontist, right? So we're waiting for a little bit, and um, I look back at the wall, and on the wall, there's like five or six um, not plaques, but just like it's, it's, it's degrees, right? It's, you know, one was like the College of Dentistry, another was for a certification this doctor had, and there's like three others. I'm not even sure what they meant, right? I don't know what they meant. I don't know, I have no idea. But here's the point. That man's going to walk through the door. He's going to tell me to spend a lot of money. 
He's going to tell me what my kid needs to fix this, right? And the point is, I need to listen to him. (laughs) That's what all those tell me. In a much more profound way. Mark wants you to see the glory of the Son. He wants you to see the glory of the Son because he wants you to trust him with everything you have. And it's going to cost a whole lot more than an Orthodox appointment, okay? So do you see his glory? He's the unique son of God who's come to bring about the second exodus, who's the father's son. Do you see why he's come? What happens next is they go down the mountain and they head down and there's an argument happening. Look at verse 14. And when they came to disciples, these are the ones that were not with Jesus on the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And we find out that what is happening is there's been a father who's brought a son who's possessed by a demon, and they want the demon to be cast out, and the disciples have not been able to do it. And Jesus, in the midst of all the commotion, in verse 19, this is his summary. This is his analysis of the situation. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The operative word, how Jesus describes everyone there. Think the scribes, the disciples, the Father who's brought His Son, everybody there. It's everybody's in this camp. Jesus says, faithless. In other words, there's unbelief. Now, what's interesting in this passage, there are actually two sources of unbelief. And the first is, I'll just point out, is the disciples. At the very end of the passage, the disciples, you know, they're of course frustrated, maybe ashamed they weren't able to do this thing. So privately, they ask Jesus, why are we not able to cast out the the demon? And in verse 29, this is Jesus' response. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here's what's going on. The disciples' unbelief is rooted in self-confidence. You may remember a few chapters ago, uh, Jesus sent out the disciples to do this very thing, to cast out demons. They were given authority to, and they did it. But now here, they're not able to. What's going on? They're presumptuous. They are proud. They are self-confident. They're like, we've already done this. We can do this again. And they fail. But the second form of unbelief is with the father of the son, 
who has this condition. Um, we, we learn in the passage as the father's talking to Jesus that, that the demon has been there for a long time in his son. It's, he, the father says that it's cast the boy multiple times into fire and water. And just, just a quick note here. Um, listen, Mark assumes that one of the realities of this world is that there are personal spiritual forces of evil. He just assumes it. It's very different than our current cultural moment, but Mark assumes that this is reality. And that means this. It doesn't mean all are possessed. But Paul would write in Ephesians that actually everyone here is in a battle with them. So back to the story for a moment. Can you imagine being in the Father's head and heart, seeing his son suffer for so many years? The despair. And can you imagine he's heard that there's someone close by that can take care of this? Can you imagine the emotion, the excitement, bringing, and then you get there and Jesus isn't there, he's up on a mountain? But, well, at least his disciples are here, and then they try it, and it doesn't work, and again. Which explains why when, when the Father comes before Jesus, he says in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. If you can do anything. It, the, the Father's unbelief is rooted in hopelessness and despair. Do you see this? The disciples' unbelief is in self-confidence. But the Father's unbelief is despair. And so let me ask you this morning, where do you find yourself? Which source of unbelief do you struggle with? Some of you, I would imagine, maybe here this morning, <laughs> you might be on your last thread of faith. Life has been hard, and you're wondering, where is God? Why has He not shown up? And you feel hopeless. And others of us, we are self-confident doers. We just get things done. But oftentimes, for those in this camp, if we're honest, we tend to plan without prayer, do friendships without prayer, parent without prayer, try to do marriage without prayer. We're, we're sufficient in and of ourselves. And here's the point. This is the beautiful part of the passage, is that no matter which way you find yourself this morning, both need Jesus, and Jesus meets both. It's beautiful in this passage. 
The self-confident, Jesus meets them with gentle correction. Notice how disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus, again, verse 29, says this, t- this kind can only come out by prayer. He just says, you've got to humble yourself. You have to be dependent. You have to learn to rely on me. Listen, um, what do you think for a moment about Jesus' words? Honestly, you're self-confident. You just need to pray. How do you feel about that? Ready to do that? Um, Let's be honest for a moment. We often think that is very ineffective. It's definitely not efficient. (laughs) Be clear about that. And it's not like Amazon. Oftentimes it doesn't show up in two days, right? Like it's, this is hard. But what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, here's the the way of the king for the self-confident. It's learning to humble yourself in in honest prayer. Listen, if if they're going to learn to be instruments in God's hands in a world that has much evil, then it has to begin, continue, and doesn't stop with prayer. One of the most convicting things that I've ever read about being a pastor was Eugene Peterson. He's kind of the pastor of pastors. He's no longer with us, but he put it this way. The primary educational task as a pastor was to teach people to pray. I usually have a list of like eight things I want to teach people before I get to that. How about the despairing? You know, notice what happens. The the father comes to Jesus and says, if anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And it's funny, right? Because you think about all of the Gospel of Mark at this point, Jesus has been marked by compassion. He cares. He's been marked by power. It's like, that pronouncement is crazy. Do you know who you're talking to, right? The whole thing is absurd. But then, notice what Jesus does in verse 23. He says this, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus lovingly rebukes, corrects, invites him to trust him. If anything, are you kidding me? He calls him to it. And listen, this is not name it, claim it. This is not that. It isn't God is a genie, he grants you what you wish. This is rather Jesus showing us that he is compassionate and he is able. And note how the Father responds. I mean, this, if you take anything away from this morning, this ought to be what you take away. Because verse 24, we can all say this. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And this is beautiful. You know why? Because it means you can come to him with unbelief and belief at the same time. It doesn't have to be perfect. This is so helpful. In fact, can I be so bold to say this is normal? Elizabeth Elliot, she puts it this way, there are those who insist that it's a very bad thing to question God. To them, why is a rude question? That depends on whether I believe it's an honest search in faith for God's meaning or whether it's a challenge of unbelief and rebellion. And this is a really helpful distinction. If you go back in the Gospel of Mark, there are a couple times um, Jesus in his hometown and the Pharisees at different moments It is a rebellious unbelief. Jesus goes to his hometown. They say, yeah, you've done all this stuff, whatever. We don't care. Who do you think you are? In in spite of all the evidence, they reject him. It's rebellious unbelief. There's a moment where the Pharisees, they look at Jesus' power and they say, I'm sorry, that's like coming from Satan. And Jesus like, that is rebellious unbelief. But notice that that's not this kind of unbelief here. There is a type of unbelief that is honest. Put it this way. It means there are going to be moments in your life which you're genuinely asking, where is God? And yet you can still come to Him. It means there are moments in your life in which you could be saying, why is He not showing up? And yet at the same time, you still lean in. Because you still hold on that He has the compassion and He has the power. And right, that is the exercise of faith. Those are those moments when nothing's happening or you're not seeing it happen the way you want, but you still lean in. Listen, faith has to be exercised. I believe, help me with my unbelief. And look at what happens, second part of 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Listen, do you see what the prayer just did? this very imperfect yet authentic prayer? Jesus answered it. Do you know what the power? Never enter him again. Can you imagine being the boy? I am never going to have to deal with this again. As we conclude, let me ask you this morning, who do you identify with in this story? Perhaps you're like the father and you are in despair. You lack hope. You lack any sense that Jesus is willing or able to assist you. Jesus is inviting you to come, to trust him. Perhaps you're like the disciples. You are self-confident. I got this. Jesus is inviting us to humble ourselves, to come to him honestly in prayer, to trust him. And let me say one other special note here. 
Some of you may be like the sun. The sun in the story, he is overwhelmed by evil. He can't, there's just, he can't do anything. And that person needs others to be praying for him. Maybe that's where you are. We'll give you a moment later on. Noah will come up and talk about that, an option there. Uh, here, here's the point. For each person, Mark wants you to see Jesus' glory on the mountain so you might learn to trust him in the value, in, excuse me, in the valley. And listen, the one on the mountain, the glorious one, is who Jesus is, the unique son of God. He's, he's beloved by the Father. He's willingly going to the cross. He's risen. He will meet you. Or put it this way, listen to a pastor this week, he said this way, there are things that God wants to do in your life. There are things that God wants to do in our church. There are things that God wants to do in our city, but it will only happen through prayer. John Newton, in one of his hymns, he perhaps put it the best, most eloquent, he said this, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None could ever ask too much. Father, we confess um, our unbelief. <laughs> we confess our need for you, and we ask you in the midst of this time to meet us where we are. Lord, for those struggling in despair, would you grant hope? For those struggling with self-confidence, would you grant humility? And we thank you that because of the work of your son, his work on the cross, that we have open access to you, that we can come just as we are. And we ask this in your name. Amen.